Well, hello and welcome to Cup of Joe with Joe Albert and Dr. Beck Burson. Um, today we're going to be, fo- and this is our last podcast for this season, I guess. And uh, this is a complex topic. We're going to talk about strategies that communities can practice that build real z- resilience in the face of adversity and create conditions where individuals and families can thrive. And there's been a fair amount of research, I think, on, on sort of individuals and resilience and so forth, a little less, it seems, on communities. So um, we have a fantastic guest who you're thoroughly going to enjoy. I guarantee that. But I'm going to let Beck say hi and introduce herself. Howdy, y'all. This is Beck Burson. I'm a physician and psychiatrist, and I love the interface between neurons and narratives. I love looking at how stories transform us individually and collectively. And that's going to be a theme throughout today is hearing Keontha's story as an individual and broadening that scope into the big collective of how we all impact each other and our ability to be resilient. So I'm just really stoked to have Kiantha with us today and look forward to how things evolve. So as Beck said, our guest is Kiantha Duncan, um, writer and artist, philanthropist, and you got to watch her TED Talk. It is really, it's just simply inspiring and uh, I tried one once and it was a semi-disaster, I think, but Kiantha just great articulation of story after story and inspiring and heartbreaking all at the same time. So we feel really, really lucky to have her with us today. Um, Kiantha, I welcome and it's really nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm always still, I will never, I'm telling you, it'll be 50 years. I will never get tired of being asked and being honored by uh, the invitations to do events like this and to come on podcast. And it's amazing. I still see myself as the girl who experienced all of those things that I talked about in the ACEs talk and my TED talk. So I am happy to be here and thank you all for having me. Oh, this is great. I, I Well, at some point, I'd love to talk to you about that. Like, how do you maintain that perspective? I think it's pretty cool, which allows you to be more effective, I, I suspect, in front of groups and stuff. So, um, so uh, as you the listeners have surmised by now, um, we always include an emphasis on narrative uh, as part of every segment we've done this past year. And uh, partly because I teach storytelling, Beck, as she said, is really interested in narrative as well. And we happen to have a great storyteller here. And so we want to get into the heart of, of what is resilience and how does it develop in individuals and families. And one of the reasons we chose Kiantha is her story, quite honestly. I guess in a summary kind of way, and Kianta, I'll we'll just open it up whatever you want to do with it. But could you share a little bit of your background? Absolutely. I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, which, as your your listeners may or may not know, Milwaukee is the number one most segregated. Uh, city in the nation, number one. And as I was growing up as a child, it was number two. And so it has graduated. I don't know if that's good, but it's graduated to number one, most segregated. And what that means in real time is that when I was uh, a child in, in Milwaukee, and this matters in my later story, but everyone around me was Black. 
everyone. So my neighbors were black. The people that I saw at the grocery store, they were black. The people that I saw in, uh, I'll say this, in the welfare office, because most people who lived in my community was also living in extreme poverty as well. So the people who were in those places receiving social services were black. They looked like me. The only people that were not black, however, were people that were in power, positions of power like the police, like doctors, they were not black, obviously. Your teachers were generally not black. There were a few teachers, a few black teachers sprinkled throughout, but for the most part, the teachers were also white as well. And I think what that did was created this narrative for not just me, but for the other children that were growing up in that time and for the parents who were raising families during that time that power belonged to white people only. And that as a Black person living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and um, having even been there for generations, your role is always going to be the role of the person in need and never the person that's able to offer something to your community, to your family, to your, your surrounding, to your city. So it started, started there. Uh, as a young child, I knew that always had a pretty big imagination. I don't know where that came from because my family actually is not like that. My family is pretty much, you know, uh, standard in that they understood the, they understood their place. And their, when I say their place, I mean, they understood that they were a family living in poverty and that was all it was going to be. And so they understood that to be their reality. And in that, they didn't really go. They didn't stretch. They didn't dream of other things. That just was not part of what they did. But for me as a child, somehow I always knew that there was something else. There is something else outside of Milwaukee. There is some other kind of food. There is some other kind of, you know, surrounding. There's a different kind of tree. There, something is different. And I want to know about those different things. Fast forward, went through, through you know, experiencing quite a bit of uh, trauma as a, as a child. I was raised partially by my, my maternal grandmother and in foster care, actually. I lived with my mother uh, for about a year and a half of my life. And after that, um, based on some issues that my mother was having, she experienced was experiencing domestic violence and also had some mental health concerns of her own. Uh, she made a choice to put me in what she thought was the safest place for me to be, which was outside of her care. When I was a younger girl, I can tell you that felt oh, horrible. I was angry with my mother. I remember my mother coming to my grandmother's house at holidays and I would see her coming in the door and I would just be disgusted. Like, why does grandma let her come over here? You know, why is she doing this? She chose to take care of her other kids and did not choose to take care of me as the oldest child. But now all of these years later where I have a grown child and I have four grandkids, it literally was the best thing that my mother could have ever done for me was to let me live a different life and to let me be in a, in a surrounding that offered me the opportunity to make some different choices in my own life and allowed me to then 
blossom really based on the adversity I had seen. Had I stayed and been raised by my mother, I don't think that would have been the case. I think that I would have fallen into that. This is Milwaukee. This is my place. This is what I'm supposed to do. You know, at best, I would have gotten a great job because I've always been pretty, um, pretty committed to having nice things in life. So I would have gotten a great job at a great factory or something and worked 30 years and retired and bought a small home. And, you know, that would have been the, the, the end of my success story because that would have been the sum of what I saw. That was success for what I saw in Milwaukee. But leaving there and moving to the Pacific Northwest and seeing all of the things that are different and alive and growing and possible, it really changed the trajectory of my life. It really did. Wow. I Thank you for bringing this up too. I, I wasn't going to, I mean, I want to introduce it anyway, but the place of race in community resilience. And that's I, some years ago, I had a student and a master's graduate student, um, uh, African-American guy from Chicago and lived with me for, lived with us for a while. And I saw like uh, Spokane, Gonzaga and so forth and so on through his eyes. And, um, and we're still really good friends. He does diversity work now up in LA and just really cool. Um, I was like, wow, you can't talk about community resilience, inclusivity, whatever, without talking about race. I mean, it's just it's uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people, you know, but uh, I don't think we can ignore it. I mean, it's yeah. You know what I mean? We can't ignore it. And and here. So. In our over the course of our conversation, I'll put on a lot of different hats. Sometimes I wish I had. I'm a hat wearer in real life. I wear a lot of really fresh hats, and I actually have a milliner that makes hats for me. But um, so I wish I had like a sample of all the different hats I can put on right now. So right now, I'm going to put on the hat of being the former president of the, the NAACP, the most recent NAACP president. Part of what I tried to do in my presidency was to help the community. So that's the Spokane. Eastern Washington, and really Washington State, because I did a lot of statewide work, help them understand that, yes, the conversation about race is uncomfortable, but we have got to get to a place. And the only way that we do that is through having authentic, just genuine conversations in which we invite our feelings to the table, which we invite our fears to the table. We invite the things that make us uncomfortable. And then we invite the reasons why they make us uncomfortable to to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So by doing that, then we start to normalize this conversation around race because it has to do with everything. Everything. There is no part. You can't talk about community resiliency without first examining what what is the role that race played in a particular community? What's what's the role that that played? And then what what is the narrative that was created by that role in that community? And then start to unpack it from there. So I hope and, and what I've heard is that people in Eastern Washington are able to have conversations around race, some a little bit easier because they've experienced that. Uh, many people in this city from literally, I don't want to name names, but Everyone comes to my home. Everyone comes to my home. Mm. Every elected official, everybody, they come and have dinner at my house. And part of the reason why I invite people to my home, I actually have a series coming up that's called uh, Politics and Pasta. 
the folks that are running for current office. So the mayor, uh, Mayor Nadine Woodward, uh, the potential mayor, mayoral candidate, Lisa Brown, those folks are coming to my home for dinner in May because I want to have an opportunity for them to talk to a small group of people and actually get a chance to answer questions that people are not comfortable with asking in large town hall style meetings. It doesn't happen. People come to those type of events to observe. They don't come to ask their questions. And so if we get comfortable with talking to one another in smaller settings and being able to feel safe enough to ask those questions often of which race will become a topic, then we can start to move away from it being uncomfortable and really just start to see it as, oh, okay, so race is kind of like food. Race is like air. Race is like water. It's just a part of everything we do and live. And we got to talk about it. Simple as that. Yep. And that's got to be the future. It just has to be, you know, and I have no doubt that if we can begin those conversations. And to me, the key is that holding, creating and holding space where it seems normal. I mean, it's like, yeah, let's talk about this, because if you want people to have a sense of belonging and included with inclusion, you know, that kind of thing, you can't not talk about it. You know what I mean? So but I do want to come back to, to something that you just touched on briefly and and like, you know, your mom, in a sense, gave you a gift and let you see this bigger world. And look how resilient you've been. As you think about your own foundation in in terms of resilience, how do you make sense of that? Like, was it the exposure that, you know, through school, through other individuals, adults, whatever it might be, but what do you think gave you that inner core, that God, it's so impressive because when you when you're in front of people, I've seen it. Uh, you know, you're vibrant, you're alive, you're inspiring, and it's like, damn, how did she do this? You know, I mean, that's quite a journey. I've, you've been I've on. never said this before. I've never said this before because it never actually. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that exact question, so I've never had a reason to really think about it in that way. But I'm going to tell you when you just asked me that question, what came to my mind, believe it or not, was how did enslaved people, how did they have resiliency? Hmm. How how were they resilient? Yeah. I don't know. It was just, they just did it. I don't know. I don't think it came from an educational institution. It didn't come from, you know, their surroundings and what they saw. It's something that is just in you. It's something that is just in you. Think about the just the millions of people, millions of enslaved people who had to do that, who worked as slaves, who lived as slaves every single day. They didn't see something outside of slavery that made them want to fight for that thing outside of slavery. That wasn't it. They didn't go to school. So they saw, you know, things in school that helped them know there was more. It was none of that. There is something that is intrinsically inside of us. And that thing we have later in in later generations put a name to it and called it resiliency. But I really think that that has something to do with our soul and our soul, our soul's makeup. I don't know that it's resiliency. I really think it's our soul is made up to survive. 
We are made of, and that's not black people. That's not white people. That is all people as, as human beings. We are made to survive things, whether that be different climates and temperature, weather, circumstances, we're made to survive. And so that thing inside of us, I think when we're forced um, into a situation where more survival skills are necessary, that thing kicks up stronger. It kicks up heavier. And that is maybe what happened to me based on all of the stuff that was going on. That soul thing kicked up and went into full force and made me, it led me to what, what ended up happening in the world. Yeah. Wow. That's, well, I'll come back to that later. I, I got to shut up a little bit, let Beck jump in here. So, Oh no, this is so powerful. And, you know, of course, I'm always thinking through the lens of my patients, right? They're such a source of inspiration to me. And, um, you know, when I hear them say, well, I, I just don't feel like I have that in my soul, right? Like I just don't feel like I can go on and trying to differentiate, you know, when we don't feel like we have that, how do we access it? I don't know. What would you, what would you respond to that, Kiantha? You know, if, and that, that brings tears to my eyes. Me too. Sorry. As a physician, mm -hmm. I think you have such a unique opportunity because if you go back to what I was saying in the beginning about in communities, especially when you're dealing with people of color or people living in poverty, power lies in the hands of the doctors, the teachers, the law enforcement, right? So as a physician, you walk into the room with a level of power that you probably will never fully wrap your mind around. You will never wrap your mind around exactly how big that is. And so for your patients who are saying, I don't have it. I don't, I don't have it in me. I don't think I can go any further. Life is too big. It's too heavy. As the person that carries that amount of power, when you say, yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. It's, it is inside of you. How do I know it's inside of you? Because it's inside of all of us. How do I know it's inside of all of us? Because I am a doctor and I carry a lot of power and I have a lot of knowledge. And I'm telling you that none of us are made different than the other. We are all made based on our DNA, our makeup. We are human beings are made the same. So the same power that allows this person who I just met in Spokane, Washington, to be able to be resilient or whatever, that same thing you have in you as well. Mm. The same thing that led whoever is the president or whatever to become the president, the same thing that helped me through medical school, you have all of that same thing inside of you. Now, granted, based on your life, your experiences, the things that you've seen, the trauma that you may have experienced, that, that piece in your soul may be buried deep. It might be deep because life happens and that shit adds on and it, it compresses you know, that wonderful thing inside of us. 
but it's there. And just them hearing that validation from you that it's there, I, I just, seriously, I really need you to hear that, that your words in the life of your patients is more valuable than probably almost anything they could receive. I believe that, Kiatha. Thank you for being so emphatic because um, I usually don't think of it as a through a lens of power. I usually think of it as sharing my struggles with depression and kind of joining them. Yeah. Saying, you know, I'm going to walk through this valley with you. Yeah. And we're going to make it through this together. But allowing for there to be that vote of confidence that there's this lateralization of this ability to be resilient, this access within us. Because, like, when I think about when I was in the Air Force, um, resiliency was sort of the cash cow in research, right? If you could crack the code to resiliency that was highly valuable Mm -hmm. and it was just looked at like why are some people resilient and other people aren't like some people are a plus resilient and some people are duds you know and that is such a bothersome construct but to have this belief no it's within all of us Mm -hmm. and um that imagination that you talked about growing up with that's probably my most meaningful response to people when they are in that midst of suffering is the future self that they haven't met yet. Absolutely. And the imagination for what that future self wants them to get through. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think, I think your point on imagination is so huge. Um, and I, if I can just riff on this and whatever comes. Yeah. You know, from your mind or Joe's mind, but I'm I'm thinking of two things, which the juxtaposition of them is actually really cool. I didn't put it together until just now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my mom sent me a picture of my, um, of, they were directors of a YMCA summer camp, Camp Reed. And I'm sitting on the lap of Steady Eddie. That was his name. Ed Taylor. He's a two-time graduate of Gonzaga. And he had written this article. um, It was called Gray Hair and the Dignity of Black Folks. And Ed is now the Vice Provost and Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs at the University of Washington. And it was a very touching article just about the imagination of individuals being able to imagine themselves growing old and how growing up black that just wasn't part of the social imagination. And not more than two days later, I had a patient who was new to me and they're a person of color and they had turned 30, which, you know, I'm in my forties and thirties sounding pretty good. (laughs) And they say to me, this was a really hard thing for me to turn 30. I don't even recognize myself. I feel like So many opportunities are closing and it it was what I would equate somebody in their fifties who was white going through. Yes. And that article came to mind and just this importance of imagination that we can imagine 
living a long life, that we can imagine making it through hard things and believe that we were built to survive hard things. Um, all that's just coming to mind. Let me tell you, can I, can I say this right there? Because I, this, I'm so glad you read that article and I'm so glad you brought this up. For me, when I was a younger child, I never saw myself past 35. Yeah. I never saw myself past 35. Now, I don't know if I thought that I would be hit by a bus at 35 or somehow, you know, I would run out and and, and get some illness or something. I don't know what would happen, but I never saw my life extended beyond the age of 35. And I had some friends threw me a big birthday party on my 35th birthday. And I remember being at the restaurant where the party was and everyone was really joyous and like celebrating that I was there it was my birthday and in my mind I'm thinking I cannot believe I made it to 35 I cannot believe this and now in hindsight what I know is that the reason why I couldn't see myself getting to 35 is because I was looking at the world and the 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 amount of time that I could have on this earth I was looking at it through a lens of trauma there is no way any human being can carry 10 tons of trauma for more than 35 years. <laughs> that's how I saw it. That's impossible to do. So something's going to happen that's going to take me out because there's no way I can feel the level of weight that I feel as a result of all of the things that I've experienced for more than about 35 years. So something's going to happen. I'm going to die. So as years continue to go by, and as I continue to heal and process all of the things that I've gone through is, is fascinating. Like I can't wait to be 65 and 75 and I hope to be 85 because now as a grandmother, I can't imagine not being here. Hmm. I, I find complete sadness and sorrow at the thought of not being here to experience my grandchildren. Mm. So that changed, but it only changed because my world expanded. My world expanded in trauma and the things that I experienced as a result of those ACEs became a part of what I carried versus the sum of what I carried. That's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so glad I get to talk to you guys today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really am. This is amazing. We are too. This this feels like a sacred space. It does. Um, oh, you... I also want to talk about something else you mentioned, depression. Yeah. <clears throat> there was a... Um, there's a picture that I have. It's a it's a small. I mean, because this is another thing. When my family would get would get the school pictures, you know, my grandmother couldn't afford to get the big package. I always used to be so jealous of kids who got the package with the eight by tens and the five by sevens. My grandmother got the package that had like one five by seven and then a a bunch of the, the small little tiny pocket size photos. But there was a pocket size photo of me when I was in kindergarten, kindergarten or first grade. And you could literally see the depression in my eyes. You could see it. You could see that something was wrong. 
that is not the look of a child who is in wanderment or who is excited about lunch or excited about going home or playing with dolls or balls or whatever. You could see that something was going on. And when I look at those pictures, I realize that that I should, I wish that, I wish that my grandmother, but again, coming from poverty, not understanding the role of um, support systems with, you know, and, and understanding a healthy relationship with, with healthcare communities, that's not the case. Usually doctors were seen as the enemy because if you go to the doctor and they find something wrong, they're calling CPS. You see what I'm saying? It's a long line of bad things. And so um, I wish that my grandmother would have seen that in my eyes and said, I maybe need to get her to somebody to talk to or see if somebody can check and see if there's something deeper going on with her. But instead, in my grandmother's mind, I think she just thought that I was a very mature child and that I didn't play like other kids played. Where it wasn't that, it was that I was really burdened by the things that I was experiencing. By the age of five, I was already being molested by age five. So, yes, in those school pictures of age five, I didn't look like a five year old that was happy and experiencing life as a, you know, just past toddler because I wasn't. I was being treated as I was much older. And so that depression was a part of my life, even as far back then. I can tell you and and I'm happy to share this because I tell people all the time because I don't have really secrets because here's the thing. Secrets hold you hostage. Mm -hmm. They hold you hostage and you don't become hostage to others. You are hostage to yourself. So I had a bout of depression not too long ago, about three months ago, actually, where I just nothing triggered it. Nothing. Happened. There was like no big thing that happened. I just got to a point where I wasn't feeling like myself. I didn't feel as driven. I didn't feel, um, I didn't feel as light. I call it light. I didn't feel as light as I normally do. Life felt very heavy. I felt heavy. And that is going to happen for as long as I live. Because no matter where I get to, it doesn't change where I've been. It doesn't change where I've been. It doesn't change all the experiences that have happened to me. No matter how I learn to deal with the trauma that I've experienced, doesn't take away the trauma that I've experienced. And so it will show up at different times in my life. And the, the good news is that now it doesn't stay. It doesn't stay. It still will come, though. It will visit me just like it'll visit anybody else who has experienced things that cause you to have those sorts of feelings or reactions in your body. Um, but, but they just don't stay. They just don't stay. So that five-year-old on that picture was, you know, that that feeling that that five-year-old felt, I felt that a couple months ago. Oh, thank you for sharing. It reminds me of the important distinction that people can be resilient and be depressed. That's a book. Write that book. Can I co-write that with you? Yes, let's do it. That is the truth. And nobody talks about that. They don't. And, and okay, I, I bet you have some thoughts on this. I've had patients, again, patients of color, who have a strong reaction to the word resilient because they're they're like, that is just a convenient 
term that white folks say to keep me feeling this way. Exactly. You know, because I'm resilient. I can I can handle this systemic awfulness. Exactly. And so people kind of get typecast as if they're resilient, they can't be depressed. That's right. That's and right. To let both be true, that right. we can be immensely resilient and depressed in this paradoxical, you know, dialectical, two things opposing being true at once is so important as a society and for individuals. And um, and then just looping it back, you know, you the resiliency gives you the courage and the confidence to make it through the depression. Like what you were saying, it's still going to happen. But right. you know, oh, now it's not going to last. And it reminds me of that um, Rilke poem, Go to the Limits of Your Longing. And, you know, this, I think, what, 18th century, 19th century German poet writes, let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Oh, I, I got to write that down. No feeling is final. No feeling is final. And and that relationship, yeah, between mental health and resilience and communities, I mean, there's there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the word resiliency, I, I also think about that, you know, like if you take one of those really wide uh, rubber bands that are super strong and like you pull it and it just keeps stretching, well, it's resilient until it's not. Right. Because at some point those can break. <laughs> so it's resilient until it's not. So even for me, and 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 I like to um, share that as being my truth, and and offer that as truth for other people. Res- you're resilient until you're not. Because maybe you will have a day where you don't feel that way, and that's okay too. Because like you said, no feeling is fine. Yeah. No feeling is final. So it's okay to have those days where you don't feel as elastically, as able to bounce back, as able to uh, hold and carry all of the things that, that happen to you in your world. The problem too with you know resilience is that it is seen sort of as an either or. Exactly. You're either resilient or not, which means that you're falling apart, coming undone, everything is wrong, you know, and the truth, like you said, many of us, me, you included, we, we're resilient, all right, but that doesn't mean that we don't have these other things and parts to ourselves as well. Don't put me in a box and make me have to be this way. Don't make me be resilient all the time, because right. I'm not. Well, and sometimes we're, I, I use the word typecast, but kind of forced into resilience to make other people not feel uncomfortable. You know, I think about, um, so I met my husband um, at officer training 17 years ago, and he had recently lost his wife to cancer at the age of 28. And, you know, he was in training to be a chaplain. So in these highly religious communities, somebody dying that young was such a, a difficult thing to explain that it's like all through that process, my husband had to just be like, Oh, count it all joy. (laughs) I'm, I'm making it through this. All right. And, and how um, damaging that can be. Absolutely. Not be able to just be honest, 
even if it makes people uncomfortable, even if it makes people confront their own fears, their own vulnerabilities of like, you know, part of me is okay and part of me isn't. That's right. That's right. And that changes from day to day. Yeah. And, and that's okay. That is okay. Uh, we, our society, we, for some reason, we're just comfortable with shit fitting in perfect little boxes. <laughs> we're uncomfortable when things spill out of the box or the box tips over and it's kind of in this box and that box. Like we're uncomfortable with that. We need order, right? And the truth is, Nothing in this world is as orderly as we want it to be. It's really not. If it were, we would not be at war. We would not be, you know, there would not be hunger. There would not be homelessness if everything fit in a box perfectly because all those things would be taken care of. But the truth is they're not. We don't we don't fit neatly into these things. And it's the same when you talk about resiliency and depression and mental health and all of those. It's it, we're we're we are. uh a mixed bag of everything in every way. Like that's a book too, everything in every way. Cause that's really our experiences. And as a person who has dealt with, you know, depression, who has dealt with extreme trauma, all of those things, I am those things. Those are parts of me and I'm highly successful and I'm highly sought after and a documentary maker and a columnist. You know, all of that, because I don't fit into the package, you know, I'm all the pieces and it's okay for us to be that. And I think if we share that message more then people who are in the midst of their crisis would see a light at the end because they would say, oh, like you said, no feeling is final. No moment is final. Where I am today does not mean I'm going to be there a year from now, six months from now two hours from now, six years from now. So there is room for something else to happen. And we don't share, we don't share that message with people. Can I come back and talk to y'all sometime? <laughs> yeah, I think that's just going. We'll have this is part one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, think about it like that. And I it's it, too, it's it's about ambiguity, you know, like people are more complex, like you just said. I really like that. That that tendency towards categorizing or putting people in buckets and you know, that type of thing. And people just aren't that containable. I mean, we're complex beings, kind of, you know what I mean? So um I don't want to run out of time, but Beck, any other questions or can't anything else that you want you want us to ask you? I don't I don't have anything that I want you to ask me, but I, I do have something that I want to say to you all, which is you and I and I mean this, I don't say anything I don't mean. That's something that I want you all to know as we continue to develop our relationship, whatever that's gonna be, because I don't believe anything happens by chance. And so whatever this is and whatever this will turn into, I welcome it. Um, but as we do this, I want you to know from my heart that the what you guys are doing, if only three people listen to this, if only seven people listen to this, this is really, really important. It's really important to have the perspective of the doctors and then the perspective of someone who is living this life and, and supporting communities from a different way. And then someone who's experiencing these, these things that you all are discussing to bring that 
that conversation to a whole is really beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. And I don't think I've experienced this type of conversation in this way. And so um, as this is the last the last podcast for this season, I know podcasting can be really uh, laborsome sometimes when you have to sit down and make yourself, you know, be there and be present for that amount of time. I tried it for a little while and then I had to schedule it for later. I, I actually built a podcast studio in my home. And so I can I can hop on a podcast and it sounds lovely. I'm in my office right now. But um, but as you continue to do this and on the days where it feels like, oh, we got to come up with content and blah, blah, blah know that this, what you did today and what I'm sure you do in all of your other episodes is really important. This is really important and somebody is going to hear it and it's going to change somebody's life. And it's easy to forget that you can have a conversation and it changes somebody's life. But this, I think, is going to do that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I, I have this image of you being one of those people that's like a construction worker. You're building this I have a vision of of an inclusive community. I mean, I, I where people feel seen, they feel heard, you know, they feel like they belong. And you're an agent for that. You know, it's just it's really an honor to to spend this time with you. I don't know, Beck, how you feel, but it's just been really remarkable. It's really transformed my view of resiliency. To, to be frank, I mean, again, coming from a, a model of research and translational epigenetics and looking at all these biological, psychological, social, spiritual aspects to resiliency, I I feel like I have a better understanding just through our conversation of how community does impact our ability to individually be resilient and how our individual resilience impacts our community resilience and um I don't know maybe some people would look at this as a hard conversation I didn't feel like it was hard at all but I felt like it was honest and I didn't feel like it was necessarily framed through race but framed through an environmental experience that we are exposed to just like environmental influences impact our health and um Joe and I were talking earlier about how, you know, there's research on community resilience, you know, how a community bounces back or even becomes stronger after an earthquake or a tsunami. And there's lots of research on individuals in resilience, but the interaction between the two is so hard to measure that there's not a lot of great research looking at factors of resilience for a community and how that fosters individual um, resili- resilience. But I think looking at it through the lens of race actually sh- shows there is definitely a factor <laughs> that it influences people, but how, how can we use that as information to strengthen the conversation um, so that we all benefit in this, this idea of co-flourishing um, and I, I don't know how much we have for time, Joe, but, you know, just maybe ending on a, a couple concepts of um, factors that 
improve individual resilience and when applied to a community might actually influence both for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't, I don't know if we have time for that. Yeah, we're almost out, I think. But I, I will say, I mean, I think it's, there's something about, there's that notion of transformational coping and, you know, that I've seen in a lot of the resilience literature. And um, it's really about mindfulness and coping. I mean, with, with you know, adversity in some way in your life. And are you able to sort of see it? You know what I mean? Kianta just modeled it perfectly today, talking about her story, sharing her story. But I think it it's like, how did I get through? Like, like when I would teach seniors at Gonzaga in the spring, I would always end with um, sort of a recognition that despite the fact that a lot of them just feel like they didn't really have any adversity, but they did. They have family stuff. They have stuff at school, friends, whatever it might be. And be able to sort of look at that and not, but just sit with it. It's like, yeah, I got through. That was hard. I was depressed or I was slightly suicidal or whatever it is, you know, and uh, my parents broke up, you know, all that stuff, but I got through it. And that's, that's a coping thing that I've had to, to, to manage. And so I don't know, I, I think there's some of the ingredients that that's one of the reasons I do, you know, I've done over the years, I've done triathlons because I love how much it challenges me psychologically to, to push beyond my own boundaries, you know, cause I know I, I can quit pretty easily, but eh, you just, you push yourself through something and you learn something about yourself. I don't know, you know, what else I would, let's maybe less than a minute, but what else would you guys add to that? Oh, I am listening to you guys because I'm I'm writing notes at this point. This this idea of a psychological triathlon hmm. and challenging myself that just stabbed me like, uh, as Oprah says, that was an aha for me. I, I didn't have the language to use, so you just opened up something in my mind that now is is connecting some dots for me. That's a wonderful. Well, and just that confidence that we can become stronger through these events. And there's a lot of research to support that. You know, Seligman and positive psychology talking about post-traumatic growth and just the sheer reality that comfort and growth can't coexist. And this belief that um, we're stronger together and that imagination, that hope that we can see ourselves being okay, even when things are not okay. Um, that's that's what I'm taking with this. And yeah, there's lots of research on all these individual factors and dynamics and how to cultivate them. But I feel like we sort of zoomed out at the meta picture and it was really gratifying. So thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, the the thing that I would ask um, of you is that if this conversation has been helpful to you all, tell somebody about me so that I can talk to some more people. That's, you know, that's the thing that I that I love the most. And that I think is is the piece that also does have to do with race in an interesting way. There are doors 
that as a Black woman, no matter what I achieve, no matter what level of success I have, there are certain doors that I can't see that are not visible to me that you all can see. So if you pass one of those doors, open it up for me. Because I don't even I don't even see it. I don't even know it exists. So that would that would be helpful. And that's one of the reasons we wanted you on. I, I think people need to hear what you have to say and and more importantly, who you are. And it's what you have to say that that's certainly important. But I just think to be around you is inspiring. I'm going to close with this. Um, a year and a half ago, my wife died and and uh, she had COVID and um, it was pretty rough. You know, And I remember coming home the night uh, we had to make a decision about uh, she was uh, on a ventilator. So we pulled the ventilator, my two sons and I, and uh, made that decision. And we came home that night pretty somber and um, we heard noise out in front of our house and we walked out front. <clears throat> there was my entire neighborhood, 30 people in a semicircle. Um with my wife's name and candles, you know, in the street, it was just so I'm like, Oh, this is, this is community. I mean, we only lived here a couple of years, you know, so we really didn't know people that well, but it was quite powerful for me just to feel that embrace, you know, from everybody. And, um, and at her funeral, I read this, it was, and I'll close with this. Um, she taught English high school English for many years. And one of her favorite books was the great Gatsby. And, um, and this is the quote from the Gatsby that I think captures her, but also you. I got to say this. Um, and the quote reads, it was one of those rare smiles with the quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four, maybe five times in your life. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant and then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor. It understood you just as far as you wanted to be understood, believed in you as you would like to believe in yourself, and assured you that it had precisely the impression of you at your best that you hoped to convey. So, Kianta, thank you so much. Uh, it's an absolute joy, pleasure to spend this time with you. Um, Beck, we had a good season, I think, and uh, we'll we'll shoot for next year and build on this somehow. I don't know how. Uh, <laughs> Kianta is certainly going to be invited back. But uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, any feedback, suggestions, whatever, uh, you can get to me through LinkedIn. And I think Beck as well. Is that right? Would that be the best yeah. way? Yeah, okay. And um, so with that, thank you so much and um, have a great rest of your day. Who is ever listening out there and Kiantha, uh, and a million thank yous. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.